Well, thank you for staying. <clears throat> thank you to all of those who contributed to that uh, very lovely meal and um, worked hard to ensure that we would expand our horizons, uh, some in ways we probably don't need, but it was very, very good. I will make a deal with you. I, won't, I don't plan to speak long. I never plan to speak long, but sometimes... You know. <laughs> But I will make a deal with you. I will not fall asleep if you don't fall asleep. So, how's that? Um, <clears throat> I want to wrap up our time together, and it truly has been wonderful. Uh, I want to wrap up our time together by looking in um, Romans chapter 15 and thinking together about just some basics of mission strategy. That's basically what I do for a living now. I mean, I. I get paid to teach college students to think about missions and how to strategize for missions. And someone was asking at lunch about travel. And I, up until COVID, I had been outside the U.S. at least once a year for probably 25 years in a row. And I look forward to being outside the U.S. I look forward to being in missionary settings in part because it really is very easy in an academic environment to sort of get wonky and not to think about the reality, the practical side of things. You become a philosopher. And um, so being on the field and seeing actual missionary work, engaging in it in some cases, uh, teaching at times on mission fields, that, that has always been a highlight for me. I made that a condition of my being hired when I started at BJU. And up until COVID, I'd always been able to travel. And we're looking forward, hopefully soon, to be able to get back to some sense of normalcy with that. But my, my life has been really about um, helping others do missions. It, it was our intention, I mentioned this yesterday, Carrie and I, it was our intention to go to the mission field. That was our plan all along. Um, but in God's providence, it just didn't turn out that way. But, but by his grace, there have been many, many, many uh, that I've taught that have gone on to do missions um, in all around the world, and then people that I've had the chance to interact with through the years while they're on the field. And so um, all of that leads me to really think about what, what really are we supposed to be accomplishing when we think about missions. You're aware that the term missions is not a New Testament word. It doesn't occur in the Bible. It really is, um, the, the word itself comes from Latin, and it's used first of like um, military adventures or you know going out to to take new territory and that really fits the idea of missions which in my mind is always intended to be about taking new territory for the kingdom of god it the the word the, the word came into use as well because in the latin bible the latin vulgate um, the word apostello which means to send was translated as Missio, so that's where we get the connection into English. And uh, it has the idea, really, of the apostolic mission, that is, to take the gospel further and further and further. So this session, I told um, Kendall that I would just really try to just focus on just some practical thoughts about um, mission strategizing. So, so where does that put you? Not all of you are going to be missionaries on a field, uh, the few of you who are, this will, I hope, help you think through where are you and, you know, in, in alignment and um, comparing your goals and thoughts 
in a, in a helpful way. Uh, those of you who are aspiring to that, this will maybe be a help to you in thinking ahead, what should this look like? And those of you who are supporting or making decisions about missionary support, this may be a help to you in terms of guiding those thoughts. What's, what's um, something that deserves our, our attention and our finances as far as advancing the kingdom? So I'm looking at Romans 15 in which Paul sort of lays out his thinking about his ministry. This is now after three missionary journeys when he writes this. So he's had some experience traveling and spreading the gospel. <clears throat> we looked at Paul's commission yesterday in Acts chapter 26, his, his accounting of his uh, conversion and his commissioning. And Paul, as he said to Agrippa, was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He did what Jesus gave him to do. What did, what did Jesus give him to do? Basically the same thing he told the other apostles this morning in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and establish them. And this is what Paul does. In fact, in um, Acts 14, at the end of his first missionary journey, uh, we see Paul retracing the steps of his journey before heading back to Antioch. And he goes through the places where he's been, and it says that he uh, makes disciples. In fact, he uses the exact same word that's used there in, uh, in Matthew 28. Makes disciples. He, he teaches them, and he establishes them. They appoint elders. So in many, many ways, missions really comes down to Evangelism, discipleship, and establishing new leadership. That's, that's what it comes down to. This is exactly what Jesus did with his followers. I mentioned this morning, why didn't Jesus just stay after his resurrection? Um, depending on how you read a few passages in the Old Testament that was predicted that he would go back, but that's, that, even that is a bit of a strain. There's nothing that necessarily demanded that Jesus go back to heaven. He could have stayed if he wanted and do the work himself, and clearly he would have been able, able to do that better than anyone else. But his plan from the beginning was he's going to build his church through his people as he fills them with his spirit and as they follow the pattern that he's given for them. So what was Jesus' pattern? He comes, he adapts to the people where they are. He becomes a man, a Jewish man, living in Jewish society, in a Jewish family. He adapts to the people that he's there to reach, and he gives them the message of salvation. And, of course, in Jesus' case, it's far more than that because he is the Redeemer. He actually is the one who pays for our sin and raises from the dead in victory over sin. But he sets the pattern for how this ministry would look like. And when the pattern is finished, he leaves. He tells the disciples in John 14, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. If I go, I'm going to send someone in my place and you will accomplish more work with him than you were able to do with me, which had to sound crazy to them. It doesn't make any sense to them. But Jesus' pattern was to teach, essentially in this case, the local people, the Jewish disciples, teach them, um, make sure that they understood the work of the Holy Spirit in the endeavor, and then um, leave, move out of the way. Of course, he doesn't abandon them. He sends his spirit. Paul doesn't abandon his converts. He returns um, almost every place he went. He went more than once. And he sends others at times when he can't go back a few places like Thessalonica. 
And so his, his pattern is very much the same as Jesus. He goes, he evangelizes, he disciples, he establishes people in the faith, he makes sure that they're able to continue on because they have the scripture, they have the spirit of God, and then he leaves. He moves out of the way. And he assumes that the gospel is going to move forward from there, that church, that new established conclave of Christians, Christ followers, baptized believers, they're going to saturate their area with the gospel. So Paul lays a lot of this out in Romans 15, which is why we're looking here now. And just again, because as you can tell by this point, I love making sure we're looking at things in context. In uh, the first chapters of Romans, the, the bulk of the book of Romans, Paul is establishing a doctrinal foundation. Uh, I think, in fact, let's go ahead and skip forward a little bit and look at near the end of chapter 15 to start. He says in verse 22 of Romans 15, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered to come from coming to you. Um, and he's, he had just finished talking about all the obstacles and things he's experienced in ministry. And then skip down to, uh, well, in, in, go ahead, I'll keep reading in verse 23. Now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. And he talks about the offering he's taken up from the Gentile churches. So here at the end of the book, Paul explains what his plans are, and those plans essentially involve going to Spain as a missionary. Uh, it would be helpful, but just imagine, if, in fact, if you, have, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, feel free to look. It won't distract me if that's helpful to you, but if you have maps in the back of your Bible, if you find a map of the Roman Empire you'll notice that if you divide the Roman Empire essentially in half, Rome is pretty close to the center point. The far eastern border of the Roman Empire is essentially Israel, the Levant. Um, And that's where Paul starts. And where Paul had effectively evangelized, we'll see more of this in a minute, was the, the eastern half of the empire. Rome represents the westernmost part of the empire at that point. And of course, in their minds, in first century minds, the Roman Empire was the world, right? That was the civilized world. That was the world as they knew it. And so uh, Paul is, is committed to spreading the gospel through the whole Roman Empire. And he has, uh, in his mind, we'll look at this more in a minute, he, in his mind he's done half the job. He's got half the job left to finish. So he wants to go to Spain. The problem is of course, he goes back to Jerusalem. The plans do not turn out as he intended. He's arrested. He's imprisoned. He ends up going to Spain as a, or to Rome as a prisoner. Most church historians believe that Paul was released by Nero at his first hearing and probably did go to Spain. That's not recorded in the scripture. Uh, but without any question, Paul was eventually, whether it was during his first uh, imprisonment in Rome or a later imprisonment, he was taken by Nero and was eventually executed, probably around 64, 65 AD. Um, so Paul is giving them his plans. Why is he telling the Romans this stuff? And, and backing up another step, I think that's probably 
Well, this all goes together. Why does Paul take all this time to write this doctrinal treatise to the Romans? Why didn't he write this to the Ephesians? I mean, what he writes to the Ephesians is grand. But he doesn't... So, but most of the letters Paul writes are, 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 are letters written to fix a problem. They're crisis letters. You've got a crisis going on over in Ephesus. Here's what you need to know. You've got a crisis going on over in Galatia. Here's what you need to know. You've got a crisis. You've got problems. You've got doctrinal issues over there in Thessalonica. Here's what you need to know. But not so much Romans. Romans isn't written necessarily to fix something. It's to explain something. What is, why does he do that to Rome? Well, I think the reason is because, as he says, he's planning to come to Rome, be a blessing to them, and be blessed by them, and then go to Spain. Why does he need Rome? Because it's just not practical to travel from Antioch back and forth all the way to the westernmost part of the empire. So I think what Paul is doing is saying, I'm looking for a new sending church, to use our vernacular. I'm looking for a church that makes sense geographically for me to continue the mission I feel like I'm called to, to, to uh, complete. Uh, that would be then moving from Spain into the west rather than coming all the way from Antioch. And so he wants to make sure that Rome is in agreement with doctrine. He doesn't want, he can't make this his home church, his sending church, as it were, if they've got doctrinal issues, if they're mixed up doctrinally. So he goes through a lot of detail about the nature of salvation and sanctification and so forth, which, of course, for us is a huge benefit and blessing, and it's the most um, um, detailed explanation of salvation we have anywhere in the Bible. But again, all of this is in lieu of Paul going there. In the process, uh, Paul, so Paul gives him this detailed explanation. It's beginning in chapter 12, he turns to more, which he always does in the epistle, he turns to more practical applications. And he says, okay, this is what this looks like for you. This is all this doctrine. What does that look like? And beginning in chapter 12, he begins to explain that, make applications to various aspects of life. And then in chapter 14, he's talking about the church and issues of unity. Um, because issues of disunion in the church didn't start in the 21st century. Disunion in the church is part of our human condition. And in that situation, it had to do oftentimes with Jewish believers and Gentile believers being in the same congregation. Jewish people had been conditioned to look at life and culture in certain ways, and Gentiles had been conditioned by their experience to look at life in different ways. They were both believers. They were both equally committed to the gospel, but they had issues. And Paul describes those issues as the weak and the strong, having to do with excessive prohibitions. Those were, in his mind, the weak, and the strong who realized that the degree of liberty they had in the gospel. I'm not going into that here. That's a, that's a, a difficult and detailed subject, which is helpful, but it's not the point today. Um, that's chapter 14. And Paul basically says, in a nutshell, okay, learn to get along, people. You need to accept one another. Jesus accepted you. You can accept your neighbor. You can accept your fellow believer. And so in chapter 15, if we pick up the reading in chapter 15, he's kind of wrapping up that discussion from chapter 14. So he says, beginning in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves, let, us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we may have hope. May the God of encouragement, or endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So he starts with this example of Jesus and he applies it to them and he says, look, before I can talk to you about me coming to you, before I can come to you and talk to you about you sending me to the further parts of the empire, before you can be a gospel-centric church with gospel-centric motivation, you've got to learn to work together as a church. The reality is, what Paul is saying is, unity comes before outreach. You're not going to have effective outreach if you're not unified. And so, in our day, right, it's masks and vaccinations, and Democrats and Republicans... And I'm sure we could come up with all kinds. It could be sports teams. It could be whatever. And some of that is in good-humored fun. And some of it gets downright nasty. And I don't care where you are in that spectrum. Here, we're all at the foot of the cross. Right? There should be no place on earth that shows unity more than the local church. And you like things traditional, and the other person likes things a little more contemporary. And you like to move a little bit when you sing. The other person, that would be anathema. And I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter. And until or unless we can come together with the gospel as the center, you're not going to be effective in outreach. I'm not saying that because I've heard anything. I don't know anything. I'm saying that because I said the same thing to the church I attend just a few weeks ago preaching from the same passage. And that's the, that's the focus. So that comes first, and then, okay, let's talk about how we're going to expand our outreach. So, um, so much, so much of, the, of the energy that we could put into reaching the world around us is lost in trying to convince each other of things that at the end of the day are not going to matter. And that's really Paul's point. That's his whole point in chapter 14 and 15. Just get over it, move forward, love one another, and accept one another because Jesus accepted you. Well, then he goes on, and um, verse 8, he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among all the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and that all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Without getting too technical there, what Paul is essentially doing is saying, look, in the church at Rome, you have Jews and Gentiles. The Jews have a covenant relationship with God from the Old Testament. They are the people of God. They have the first covenant. And so God, through Christ, uh, Christ became a servant to to the Jews, to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness, to confirm the promises. God kept his covenant. God kept his promises. He's fulfilled the oath. But the Gentiles... 
The Gentiles, God doesn't have a covenant with them. God has mercy on them. God, in his kindness, grafts them in. And he talks about that earlier in Romans. And then he gives quotes from four different Old Testament passages about Gentile inclusion in the people of God. He gives a quote from Psalm 18, the writing of David. He gives a quote from Deuteronomy 32, the writing of Moses. Another quote from Psalm, this time 117 from David. And finally a quote from Isaiah. And so he gives, he gives quotes from the span of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. He gives quotes from the three great uh, Jewish writers in the Old Testament, Moses, David, and Isaiah. And he points out that from the very beginning, it has been God's intention that his, his glory be known among all the peoples of the earth. So he's, again, sort of establishing the doctrinal foundation. Paul's point is, this is not my idea. This is God's intention from before the world began. This was God's intention with Israel. God has fulfilled what he said he was going to do. He is now including the Gentiles. And so, let's go. That's, that's essentially what Paul's saying. Now, he moves into his strategy more specifically now in verse 14. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, he's looking back over the whole book of Romans, on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's kind of in that wrapping up his whole discussion up to this point in the book of Romans, specifically in the context about this issue of the weak and the strong and having unity in the church. And he's, he's, he's telling them, I've taken pains to tell you all this, but I also know that you're strong, you're good, you're going to do this, I have confidence in you. So he's, he's, he's building them up. Then in verse 17, he moves more directly into his plans for the future. He says, In Jesus Christ, then I have reason to be proud of you, or I'm sorry, proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul, as he lays out his vision for the future, he says, let me explain to you, first of all, that I've pretty much wrapped things up in the places where I've already been. I mentioned this before. Where has he already been? Well, from Jerusalem all the way around about to Illyricum. Here's a $10 question. Where is Illyricum on the modern-day map? Greece? Actually, you're pretty close. You're pretty close. It would be modern-day Albania. 
David Hasselflug country, right? Didn't you say you just saw dispatches from the front with David Hasselflug? So uh, Albania, that's modern-day Illyricum. And, you know, again, it's fun to speculate, but we just don't know. First of all, the New Testament never mentions Paul going to Illyricum, so apparently there's things that Paul did that were not recorded in the book of Acts. Um, Secondly, Illyricum would have been really close to Rome, like modern-day Albania is really close to Rome. We know that the eastern half of the empire was still speaking Greek, and from Rome westward, westward they were speaking Latin. Um, and so it's possible that they spoke Latin in Illyricum. We don't know. That's, that seems to be the case, though, from ancient indications. We don't know that Paul spoke Latin. We do know that Paul spoke several languages. What, what languages does Paul speak? Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. So at least three languages. Did he also speak Latin? Maybe. He's very highly educated, so it's possible. And it may be that he went as far as Illyricum because he wanted to try it out. Let's see how my, let's see how my Latin is. Because if he had gone to Spain, he would have been speaking Latin. Everything west of Rome was Latin. And, of course, eventually the empire did divide, right, into Byzantium or Constantinople and modern-day Istanbul and uh, one side and Rome on the other. So, um, so Paul is, is declaring that he has wrapped things up in that area. Now, here's where just a little bit of common sense thinking will help clarify a lot as far as how Paul saw himself. Think about what we do know about Paul's missionary journeys. Um, There are recorded for us three of them in the book of Acts. Paul is busy, active before the first missionary journey. Apparently he planted churches in and around Tarsus and Cilicia and Syria before he moved to Antioch. That comes out in his first missionary journey. They're visiting churches that you have no idea where those churches came from. But Paul had been in that area for about 10 years bef- between his conversion and the, the first missionary journey. So he probably was up there planting churches, apparently. Um, so, so we know that. We know first missionary journey, he goes basically to Galatia. Um, second missionary journey, he goes as far as Macedonia, uh, which will be Europe, um, and then uh, third missionary journey, he goes into the Roman province of Asia, Ephesus, and um, comes back to Corinth again. That was second and third missionary journey. That's um, Macedonia. So Paul has, Paul has really kind of worked in that eastern half of the empire. We know that from the record of the book of Acts. But Paul declares that he has, how does he say it? I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Then in, uh, we read already verse 22, I've been hindered from coming to you, but now since I no longer have room for work in these regions, what, Paul? Stop and think about those regions. I mean, there are literally a million or more people in those regions, probably several million people in that region. And there are scores of cities it's kind of hard to figure out exactly how Paul chose to go to which city. We know he has a plan. He tells the 
Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 1 or 2, he tells the Corinthians, he describes himself as a wise master builder. That's the King James word. The Greek word is architect. I'm the architect, which means he has the blueprints. He knows the plan. So he's not operating willy-nilly. He has a plan, which he is glad to submit to the, to the Lord because when he wants to go to Asia in the second missionary journey and the Holy Spirit says no, I'm not sure what that looked like, you know, was like a Gandalf on the bridge, you shall not pass. I don't know, but they knew the Holy Spirit said no. And so then he has the vision, the Macedonian man, he goes over to Macedonia and they start in Philippi. But all along the way, they're skipping towns and villages. How does he do that? Well, it seems like he's visiting places that are on the Roman road system, the Roman highways. Don't think highways like we think highways, but the main roads, the thoroughfares. And these are places from which the gospel can easily spread. So he's choosing what we would think of as metro areas, more or less. And they are areas that are influential in some way. That's probably the best we can come up with. Others have tried to be much more specific, but it's hard, it's hard to do that from the text itself. Um, but Paul had a plan. He worked the plan. And apparently, according to his understanding, he had finished the plan. So here's what I want to say um, in terms of mission strategy. Clearly, the strategy was not to go to every single place because he didn't do that. Clearly, the strategy was not that he personally had to preach the gospel to every single person because he didn't do that. Apparently, the strategy was to establish beachheads, was to establish outposts, was to establish missions so that the gospel would continue to saturate the region as the people of God, controlled by the Spirit of God, were witnesses for Jesus Christ and told everybody in their neighborhood, in their region, about the gospel. The Thessalonians did that, right? Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, you're, the word about you is spread all the way down to Achaia, all the way down by Corinth. They're talking about what happened up in, in Thessalonica, that you turned from idols to serve the true and living God. Apparently, the Thessalonians were really vocal and really declaring what God had done in their midst and how they were now dedicated to Jesus Christ. And... Um, and so, so, so Paul's plan was to go to a place, stay there long enough so that some local person had the ability to carry that on. Um, now, Paul later, later in his ministry, probably among some of the last things he wrote, talked about qualifications for elders in both Titus and Timothy. But even in his first missionary journey in Acts 14... He makes disciples. He gives them warnings about what's to come. And he appoints elders. Well, who were those elders? I've heard people say, well, they sent to Jerusalem and had them sent up. I don't think so. I think they were local people. Which means they probably didn't know everything. They didn't have a seminary degree. And again, who better than Paul himself to stay and preach the word? I mean, literally, Paul is probably one of the most educated people on the planet in his day. He's a phenomenon. But that's not his role. His role is to start things. And I've said for years, the role of a missionary is to start things. What does a missionary do? He starts things. 
He, and it, it may not always be the same thing. Maybe there's already a church started, but there's no real strong discipleship. And so they, people need help learning how to disciple others. And, and so he goes on to help with that. Or maybe they need help with the school. Maybe, he need, maybe they need some more training. So he goes on to start that. But the missionary is always seeking to move things forward so that eventually the local can do it. And part of what we've seen, especially since the colonial era, I mean, the colonial era functioned really well with missions because we had the backing of, of colonial powers, military powers, to put missionaries into certain places, open the regions to missionaries. But so often that included then coming in with all of your cultural baggage. And there are all kinds of wonky stories about missionaries. This is 1800s, 1700s, missionaries uh, going to Africa carrying organs on their back because they couldn't worship using native music. And but what surprised me is I still hear those same arguments today. I mean, I had a running email discussion, well, let's just call it an argument, with a, a well-known um, evangelist, fundamentalist evangelist, that uh, um, because he had heard a missionary speak, uh, a missionary in Cambodia speak about native music, and so they didn't really even try to adapt our hymns to the Cambodians because they don't have an eight-note scale and it doesn't really work. And so they just had songs using native music. And this guy got really offended by that. And so he wrote to me and he said, you know, how can you, uh, how can you promote this? And this guy shouldn't be, he shouldn't be allowed to speak because he's distorting Christianity. And I said, so let me just really be clear. I understand you're saying that until a Cambodian learns an eight-note scale, he cannot worship God. And he said, absolutely. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I actually said more than that, but I won't repeat it. And um, um, yeah, so, so Paul understood that you have the gospel and you have truth. And Paul would never sacrifice truth. When Paul was in Athens and they brought him up to Mars Hill... And at least part of the purpose was to make fun of him. But Paul knew he had a chance to preach the gospel, so away he went, and he dismantled their worldview, their, their Greek dualism. He just took it apart, and he pointed them to Scripture truth. And at the end, he talked about the one who is going to judge you is the one who has been proven by God to be worthy because he was raised from the dead. And the, and the Athenians laughed at him. They mocked him. Paul's a very smart guy. He knew they would mock him when he got to the resurrection. Why doesn't he just leave that out? Because he can't. You leave out the resurrection, you don't have a gospel message. So Paul is never going to sacrifice the gospel. But he's frequently willing to you know, go with local customs, local whatever. He, he says to the Jews, I become a Jew. Uh, which meant he had to go back under the, some of the conditions of the law, which he knew he was free from, in order to reach Jews. But to the Gentiles, he could become like a Gentile, those outside the law. doesn't mean he's antinomian. It just means he adjusts. He goes with the flow. And so all of that is part of mission strategy. But for our purposes here, the point is, Paul's goal is to establish something and entrust it to the local believers. Now, in Paul's case... First of all, everybody is speaking the same common language. Although there are lots of dialects in the Roman Empire, everybody spoke 
in the case of the eastern part where Paul is talking about, everybody spoke Greek. So you don't have as much of the language where Paul didn't have to set out and learn language before he could effectively minister. And because of the Roman Empire, there were, even though there's lots of cultural variances within those different Roman provinces, you're talking about a relatively small geographic region by today's standards. And, and, and so you have some cultural commonality. So it's not like going from here to China or from here to, say, I don't know, um, pretty much anywhere else in the world. And, and so, um, so, so what I'm saying is in some ways the job today is, is more complex and more involved than it was in Paul's day. Paul, of course, is also an apostle. He has the power of signs and wonders. Um, in Ephesians and Ephesus, which was a city notoriously dark in the occult, um, apparently God accommodated that city by giving Paul extraordinary powers. In fact, they're described as extraordinary miracles in Acts chapter 19. And I always kind of chuckle when I read that because I'm thinking, how does a miracle become an extraordinary miracle? I mean, by definition, a miracle is extraordinary, right? But these were extraordinary miracles. And the result was lots of people came to faith. So God is apparently, you know, he's working within that culture in ways that the people can identify with. And some things that probably aren't ever going to happen, ever going to happen here in Limerick, were happening there in Ephesus. And it worked and people were saved. And Paul has, has all kinds of conditions that none of us are ever going to have. So I say that to say, sometimes Paul started a church in a few months or maybe a year that's unlikely in our environment today. But here's what troubles me. I know missionaries that have been a missionary in the same place, in the same church, for 35 or 40 years. I got a letter last year from a guy in Germany. I, should, I shouldn't have said Germany. I should have just left it. I, didn't want, I don't want you trying to figure out who this is. But anyway, he said, I'm retiring. Do you know anybody who speaks German who can come and replace me? And I wrote back and I said, No. I mean, you've been in Germany for 40 years, dude. Your job, you had one job. Make disciples, establish them in a local church, and find a replacement. 40 years. No, I'm not going to help you. I'm sorry. Um, And I like to think Paul would have said the same thing. He probably would have said it a little bit more graciously. whatever. But, But here's my point. Paul is pretty straightforward about his role. Now, let me be careful and quick to say... You're saying, okay, but we're not all the Apostle Paul, and you can't make all of missions the Apostle Paul. Yes, I can. <laughs> I mean, what other example do you have? You have two examples of missionary structure and strategy in the New Testament. You have Jesus and you have Paul, and they both do the same thing. Get in and get out. And expect the locals. Now, again... I know, I know a missionary, um, unfortunately no longer in the field because of some things that took place, but I know a missionary in Micronesia, had been there 30-something years, and still working on planting the first church. And given what I know about his, I've been out there to visit him several times, knowing what I know about the Micronesians, that makes sense. Um, I, know, I know David Hasefluk, been in, in Albania for, I don't know, 20 years, maybe 25 now, He's got a score of churches that he started and, or has had an influence in starting. But I know other missionaries who spent 10 years there and didn't, didn't get anything started. But it, it, so much of it has to do with philosophy. So much of it has to do with strategy.
So I'm saying all this. This is not a this is not a jump up and wave your handkerchief message. But it may be helpful for you in thinking through where you are, where you want to be, and thinking through, okay, what does this look like? What should this look like? Again, no time frame put on things. Not even necessarily saying all the missions has to be church planning. There's all kinds of things that contributed to contribute to establishing local churches and making disciples. So all of it's good, but it all should be pointing in that direction. And Paul reiterates that point in the second, in the last part we read, actually where we read first. He said, "Well, in, going back, he says I've I've fully uh, completed the gospel in from Jerusalem to Lyricum." He said, it's my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. I don't want to build on others' foundations. I want to go where those who have never been told will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And then he says in verse 23, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. So, so Paul's strategy is pretty straightforward. And I do think, though we have to be careful from... We, we, we don't want to make the error of demanding that everything be exactly the way it was in the New Testament. We're not living in exactly the same setting. There's a reason why this stuff is given to us, included for us, and left for us to understand. It really does become the basic model, the basic structure. So I, I say all this not to be critical of any min, ministry out there, anything that seems to be different from this, but just to remind us, it really is intended to be pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Here's the strategy. Go in, adjust, adapt, become like the local people, make disciples, and then expect that the Spirit of God will work through them the same way he can work through us. There's nothing magical magic about being an American that makes you more, a better vehicle for the Holy Spirit to work than it is for someone else. Um, just today, even, I was reading an email about a man that died this past week in the Philippines. I, I was in his, um, it was in um, uh, the island of Palawan and the city of Brooks Point, which is, as somebody told me, when you're driving to Brooks Point, it's not the end of the world, but you can see the end of the world from there. It really felt that way on the, on the edge of this little island. But half the population is Muslim. And up in the hills, in the jungles around Palawan, there are still cannibals. I didn't meet any of them, thankfully, but they say they're up there and they shoot, they hunt with poison darts. Still today, 21st century. And so this guy, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very engaging story. I won't tell you the whole story because I know it's getting late. But this uh, plane crashed in time around after World War II. This plane crashed. And this guy was injured, and the locals kind of, he was American, the locals kind of nursed him back to health, and he shared with them the gospel. And he ended up staying there for a while and, and starting a church, the American. He didn't stay a long time, but he stayed inside a church. And then one of the converts was a guy named uh, Joe uh, Malakao. And Joe is, is, is about this tall, a little tiny guy. Joe, he believed in the gospel. He believed in the power of the gospel. He started preaching the gospel, and he started a church, and, or he took that church, and he, and he pastored it and got the local people, discipled and evangelized and established in a church, and they started reaching out 
to the whole island. And so when I went there about four or five years ago, Joe's son, Jethro, was now the pastor. Jethro had actually come to Bob Jones and gotten a degree in the U.S. He was going back to be the pastor of the church. Jethro invited me to come and have a missions weekend there, similar to this. And so um, uh, we went around on Saturday, or maybe it was Friday, whatever, but we went around and visited some of the other churches. There were eight churches that his father had started, and they were all thriving churches, all pastored by local Palawan Filipino men. And then uh, on Sunday, they had a special day. I preached in the morning, and then they had this uh, lunch on the grounds. And then in the afternoon... Um, they had people from these villages up in the jungle that Pastor Joe had evangelized. What you have to know about Pastor Joe is 20 years before he had had a stroke. And Pastor Joe literally dragged half his body. And that man would go on foot days journey up into the mountains to spread the gospel among cannibals and people had been saved and I remember when I heard the story of Pastor Joe and I stood next to him I have a picture with him I looked like a giant there's Joe but I remember posting that on Facebook oh years ago and saying here's me with a giant man I mean just incredible Well, that afternoon, they had these churches bring their people down to the big city, big city of like 10,000 people, Brooks Point, uh, Palauan. And, um, and, And part of the afternoon service was each one of their leaders or pastors would say a few words, but they're, they're, each one of their groups would sing. And all of them had these homemade instruments that were the strangest sounds and strangest things you ever saw or heard. And they get, and it was just weird. I mean, it was like sounds that I didn't know came out of human beings. And, but they were singing, and they had tears in their eyes because they're singing glory to Jesus Christ. And it was beautiful. And, and then I spoke a little bit, and afterwards, Pastor Joe wanted me to meet this one guy. And here's this guy, and... These people from the mountain, from the, from the jungle, some of them had never been to the city before. And they're like, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, 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 a motorized vehicle goes by. I mean, they came down on horses and backs of, 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 of motorcycles or whatever they could, walking. But, you know, they were looking at everything like this is all new. It was really interesting. But here's this guy. And he had been the fourth generation village witch doctor. Pastor Joe had given him the gospel, and he had believed. And he came out of his hut, and he took all of his potions and formulas and amulets and tokens and everything that goes with all the animist system and his, his written um, um, incantations, and he went to the center of the village and he burned them publicly. And he said, I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. You can't come to me anymore for casting spells or for reading, you know, the leaves or, 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 or whatever. 
but you can come to me and I will teach you from the Bible. And the, guy, the poor guy could barely read, you know. But he was a pastor. And he had like 50 people with him from that village. And it was beautiful. And I say all that to say, all of that goes back to a little Filipino man who could barely walk. And this past week he died of COVID. Really sad. But I am really looking forward to seeing Joe in heaven. I mean, that man is going to be close to the throne of God. And I remember telling Jethro when I was there, if I ever, if Jesus was a Filipino, he would have looked like your dad. Great, great man. But he was just doing what Paul did, right? Somebody, some missionary, some, I don't even know the name of that American missionary. He's long since gone. But he came and he started something. He got out of the way. And Joe took the gospel and he ran with it. And now all across that island of Palawan there are believers because, because some missionary started something. Some missionary did Pauline missions. He worked, worked a biblical strategy. And God has blessed and God has used Joe and now his son and family. And that story could be told all across the globe, right? So, again, this is more of a lesson, not so much a preaching. But I hope this is helpful. Um, do, do you, is it time to finish? Are we done? Do you want, do you want me to take any questions? Anybody have any questions? Now, I've, now I'm feeling like a college professor. Why didn't Paul... I think that's only in the context of what was happening at Corinth. So you have division over personalities at Corinth. And so some people apparently were making a big deal out of who baptized them. And so Paul says, I don't think, I don't think Paul means I don't, get to, I don't have to baptize. I know some people made whole dispensations out of that. Um, I don't think that's the point. I think Paul is just saying, that's, that's not my main thing. It's part of the main thing, but it's not the main thing. So I don't know that Paul meant he didn't baptize on a normal routine basis. I think he just meant, it turns out in Corinth, that was not his primary experience. He'd only baptized a few. And so he was trying to use that as part of the discussion about... Um, you know, I'm, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of, oh, I'm of Jesus. So I think in the context is why he says that. I don't know, Pastor, you might want to add to that. That work for you? Yeah. yeah he's definitely trying to uh, eliminate the conflict going on there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You had mentioned about the. Paul would go to the metro centers to start churches. Do you think that works as well today as it did then? I I don't have a simple answer for that. I think it depends on the region. As a general rule, um, today people move to the metro area and they don't go back, right? So people tend to, because there's many in the metro area in most places, so the movement is into urban areas and not necessarily way back. Um, so I think you have to look at each setting. 
sometimes um, um, I, I don't think I don't think Paul would have said you can neglect or should neglect the more rural areas. I don't think that would be his intent. Um, Jesus says in Matthew nine, he went through all the cities and villages. That's northern Galilee, and where it says all, it literally means all. So you've got about two hundred cities and villages there. So I don't think you can make too much out of that. I think Paul just saw himself as having limited time. And and keep in mind, those are those are not just urban in the sense that a lot of people live there, but they're trade areas. So there's movement through there. There's military movement. There's commerce. So the gospel can spread from there to other areas. I think that's what you're. I think that's ideal. If you're looking at an area, where is the gospel most likely to spread? Especially if it's pioneer work, which in Paul's case, everything was pioneer work. Not everything is pioneer work today. I don't want to drag this out, but anybody else? You ready for a rest? Yeah, David. Um, what do you see the work of just expensive missions and um, of local trying to train local versus you know American missions? Yeah, that's a complicated subject. So sometimes, so here's what I would say. First of all, the myth is that you get more bang for your buck just by supporting an, a local, a national. That's not always true. It. My answer to that question is going to take me back to the, to the essential strategy of missions, which is expansion. Missions is always about expansion. That's the whole point of it. Why would you ever bring in someone from the outside if the local person could already do it? Well, you bring in somebody from the outside for expansion purposes. So the, the more complex answer to that question is just because someone is local doesn't mean he's the right person to do expansion. Sometimes the local person may only be able to reach a, because of ethnicity issues and racial prejudice issues, which exist all around the world. A person may not reach well into the next tribe or the next region or whatever. So if your goal is expansion, sometimes a true outsider is the best person in a pioneer environment. On the other hand, I don't want to say that just because someone isn't born in North America, they're not worthy of our support. However... My, my, my experience is that a lot of people who are called national missionaries are actually pastoring a church in some other country. And my question is, why should Americans pay for a, missionary, for a pastor in Africa, right? If, if, his, if his whole role is to be a pastor of a church in Africa, why are Americans paying for that? And this... This gets complicated. It's not simple. Um, But I think in most cases, gospel ministry expands more thoroughly if it's really truly owned by local people. In other words, if they're invested in it. Um, there, There are all kinds of exceptions to that. There's all kinds of good use of American money to support nationals. So that's not a blanket statement. But here, here's a quick example. I was in Cameroon, West Africa, and I told the missionaries that, that were there, good, a good group of missionaries, I mean, really solid guys, three families, doing a really good work, and they had the goal of an indigenous ministry. And I said, okay, let's, make, let's sit down together, let's strategize, let's make a 10-year plan. How do you go from where you are now to within 10 years you can turn this completely over to the nationals? And one of the things, you know, they, they had some good ideas. We talked about it. We, they began to implement some things. And one of the things was money. I said, where, where does the money for this ministry come from now? 
where we have three American families getting missionary support. We're all essentially tithing on our income and giving to the church. So any one of those families was giving more than the combined ability of the whole rest of the African congregation to give. So all the money is coming from the Americans. And so the Africans' idea was, why should we give anything? The Americans are paying for everything. So I said, so you're going to have to change that if this is going to become theirs. And I said, here's an idea. Um, they, were, they, were, they had, they had um, mission stations, preaching points, with, with the idea of eventually planting new churches in about six or seven different surrounding villages. This was a bigger city, so six or seven surrounding smaller cities and villages that had these preaching points. And they had some young men that were being discipled and trained and taught the Bible going out and preaching these points. I said, okay, so how do they get there? They take a moto taxi, meaning a motorcycle. You ride in the back of a motorcycle. And I said, how much does that cost? And it was like one shilling, one Cameroon shilling, which is nothing, like pennies, literally pennies. And I said, who pays for that? Well, we pay for that. Why do you pay for that? Well, because we want them to go out to those villages. I said, do the Africans want them to go to the village? Oh, yeah. I said, so get up in church and say, uh, we love you, but we're not paying for this anymore. If you want the gospel to go to those villages, you can pay for this. And they could pay for that because it was literally pennies. And it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't a stretch for them. And so not only did they pay for that, but then they started saying, we can pay for this, and we can pay for this, and we can pay for this. And their 10-year plan turned into a two-year plan, and they were done and out because people took responsibility. So I think there's... I think sometimes we assume, you know, we've been on a mission trip and we see people who don't have what we have and we feel sorry for them. And that's not always fair because sometimes I go to places and people have more than I do and I feel sorry for me, right? I mean, so I don't want to be crass and cruel because I've been to lots of places where I, I have literally taken my shoes off and given them away, right? There, there are places on earth you cannot leave without a broken heart. But... Um, but that's not always the best mission strategy. I saw one other hand, and then I'll, I'll stop. Yeah. Just wondering if you've heard testimonies um, how COVID has impacted missions. Oh, man. Well, you hear the same things I do. It, it's hurting missions because everybody's in limbo. Can't travel. Can't go back. People who have been mission have been pushed out of where they are. They can't go back or where they, where they intend to be. Um, missionaries who um, chose to stay in country, some of them can't leave. Or, and, and so it's just been really, really tough. Uh, missionaries on deputation, you know, when everybody was doing online, it's hard to raise support. So, but, but, it, but everybody was affected. Everybody had the same shared experience. So, it, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat. Um, Again, I don't know any more about this than anybody else does, but just looking at it from a missionary perspective, it's going to take many years for some countries to get to where we are right now, say, in terms of COVID in Limerick, Pennsylvania, or Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, this situation in Palau and Philippines, I mean, um, it's just sweeping through there like wildfire. Uh, I have a missionary friend in Zambia in uh, Central Africa, and he was scoffing. I mean, he's like, yeah, you Americans got all this stuff up mass and all this stuff. We don't have any COVID here. No problem. And now all this, I mean, now when it's pretty much almost a memory, beginning to be a memory for us, 
they're hit like crazy and they're in complete lockdown, all country, and can't do anything in Zambia, Central Africa. So it's just going to take a long time uh, to get vaccinations out and and whatever whatever it takes for you know people to reach herd immunity, whatever, and that's going to affect missions. Um, I was telling Pastor um, Kendall yesterday. I think one of the things that's going to happen in America, even, this is going to make us shape reshape our ecclesiology. You know, think about what really is church after all the the online experience and everybody's kind of you know figuring out what what really is essentially church, and that's probably a good thing. You know, so maybe we'll look back on this and say, at least for Christian missions, this was a this this was this was the way God helped us. It's easy to say if you've lost someone to COVID, that sounds heartless, and I don't mean it to be that way. Okay, well, thank you again. Thank you. You're so kind, and I know that it's late, and you've endured. So he that endures to the end, I don't know, but thank you. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing and allowing Mark to be with us this weekend. Thank you for the experiences that you have given to him, the wisdom that you have given to him. Thank you, O God, that we together may be led to sharpen our understanding of your word and what you call us to, not just as individuals, but as a church and how we can think about the future of missions and our role in it and how we can serve you better and push the envelope forward and advance the the call of Christ in the gospel. Father, we pray that you will raise up laborers, men and women and young people to go to give of themselves and that you will allow us, O God, to be a part of your continuing work in this world. For the glory of your name, We pray all this in Christ's name, our great Savior. Amen.